0: Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. I'm Di Crellin, I'm a nurse practitioner at the Children's Hospital in ED there, and I also work at the University of Melbourne where I coordinate the nurse practitioner program.
1: for us to talk to you without discussing pain management and management um, for children Mm -hmm. in in the emergency department. It does feel like um, we've come a long way in our practice of assessing pain in children. But um, in mixed EDs, I know we still see audit results showing significant delays in assessing and treating kids who have pain. Why is this?
0: Um, It's a really good question, I think, Cliff, and I think you're right that we have come a long way. Um, if I think back to what we were doing with kids when I first started in ed it's a very different place now and we don't do anywhere near as many I think procedures in particular where we I mean we used to torture kids I think on occasions um I think yeah, that's actually a pretty hard question um to answer and it's almost it's kind of tempting to get into a whole lot of um, of pain theory but I don't want to do that too oh please so do to the audience please <laughs> Oh no. I could kill you with, <laughs> <laughs> with theory I think about this. Um, because I mean pain's such a complex phenomenon. Um, and I think foremost, and it's not really unique to kids, in fact, is that I think we make an assumption when we're talking about pain assessment. We assume it's a clinical assessment. But the thing is, I think we've all been assessing um, and reacting to pain since our own infancy. And so we've all got a a really good, or we think we've got a really good understanding of what it, well, we certainly know what it feels like, but what it looks like in others. Um, We've got a a kind of an understanding of how we should react to pain. And I think that's, we develop that long before we become clinicians. And so we bring all of that to our clinical practice. And I think that biases us when we're making assessments of patients. We're really heavily influenced by how we've been socialised to pain. And it becomes really difficult, I think, for clinicians to move on from that and apply really just a purely clinically based um, uh, approach to pain and in particular to use the evidence, I think, because we're being informed by our socialisation. And then, you know, I think that probably goes um, some way to explaining why we've had such difficulty making Um, the kind of incremental change to pain assessment and management that you might expect given that, I mean, in my lifetime in ED, I reckon we've probably had, I don't know, three major um, projects aimed at improving kind of the um, efficiency of pain assessment or the timeliness of of pain assessment and intervention um, and the effectiveness, and yet we've kind of not made, I think, the sorts of shifts that we might have if we'd approached um, another topic with that kind of emphasis. So I think that's probably is one of the reasons and that goes across the board that's not just kids. Um, I think though for children um, it's made that much harder um, because particularly and, and I'm concentrating really on the little kids because they're the ones I think where we have the most trouble. You know pain related behaviours are similar to other distress related behaviours. So it's really difficult, I think, then for clinicians to tease out what's going on. Is this about fear, Um, you know, being in an ED? Is it um, being approached by, you know, a stranger? Or is this actually disease or injury-related pain um, that's driving these behaviours? I think the other thing is that um, for those working in mixed departments, um, you know, children can be intimidating. Um, It's a kind of a specialty. And so then trying to work out... Um, what to do with kids. You know, what if I get this wrong? Um, What is the right approach to managing pain in a particular um, field or or setting, if you like, and circumstance? I think, you know, people find that really, can find that difficult, whereas the same sort of scenario in an adult where they felt more comfortable wouldn't provoke, I don't think, quite as much anxiety. But that said, I kind of think it's important to acknowledge that it's not just mixed departments that find this hard and get it wrong. Um, Mixed departments are doing a whole lot better, I think, than they give themselves credit for. Um, I think probably the the most obvious example that I can give that kind of illustrates that is that it was mixed departments or some mixed departments who were using intranasal fentanyl long before the children's hospital were routinely. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, they're, they're not doing as badly as they think they are. In contrast to, say, a tertiary. Hospital. Yeah,
1: that's that's really interesting. <laughs> um, you, you you raised quite a few things there, and you know, one of the one of the areas that we we maybe we're um, we incorrect, maybe we are doing quite well, but you know, it's always those different ends of the of the life cycle spectrum. Mm. So we don't do it well with with the yeah. older person either. Um, well maybe we do, maybe we are doing better than, than we than we yeah. suspect. Well, I
0: think the evidence would suggest it's some of those vulnerable groups, you know, that have difficulty self-reporting their pain that do more poorly than, than others. So it's the little kids, cognitively impaired um, adults, elderly who, again, might be cognitively impaired, people with language deficits, you know, either because they're non-English speaking or for some other reason, um, they, they have more trouble i guess expressing their pain and advocating for their experience Yeah, right
1: that's it that that, that really is interesting isn't it and it, it, it's a it's pretty intuitive to think that that's that's why hmm. and you mentioned their fear of getting it wrong with children as well um i know yeah. when i was more um of a junior ed person um it was around fear of of getting it wrong with children and you know yeah. uh, probably the same with the older person as well so um where is the science and practice at right now around assessing pain in children? What are the, and kind of what are the key messages that you have for our listeners um, who maybe we don't perceive that we do it too well at the moment?
0: Yeah, I think um, there's a, a real, uh, practice theory gap here in some ways in that I think there's been there's been enormous amounts of work um, done looking at you know at pain assessment in kids. Um, so if you look at the at the literature there's there's quite a lot in that field. Um, but actually if you if you look at practice I think the reality is most of us certainly aren't using the scales that have been developed and explored for pediatric pain assessment. <clears throat> and I think there are probably lots of reasons for that. I think if you look at the science, you you have to think of kids in in different um, you know age cohorts to kind of talk about them in, in any meaningful way. Um, because, I, and I don't, I'm sort of stating the obvious, but assessing a child of 16 months old is very different to assessing pain in a 16 year old. Um, so, I guess that makes it even harder for I think for pediatric um, assessment in that you can't just lump them all together. Um, and for those who are older and can self-report, I think then the science is probably not dissimilar to, to the science, I guess, that underpins assessment in adults in that they can self-report. You've got those kinds of scales that you might use in adults to self-report pain available to you. Um, and you know, there's there's evidence to suggest that they have a place, but that there are some limitations to those scales um in particular, they're not terribly reliable. Um, <coughs> pardon me. I think when you come down, you know, and look at younger age groups, um, we're shifting our view about um, the cohort kind of that we've always thought could self-report their pain. So I'm talking about perhaps four to six or seven-year-old age groups. And so we've used things like the Wong and Baker faces to overcome um, some of the problems they might have with the language around, um, you know, scales that ask them to to apply a number to, to their pain experience but what we're finding is and, and in is appearing increasingly in the literature as evidence to suggest that kids in that age bracket just don't handle scales that have got as many categories as that in it. So there are six face, you know, six options across the the face of scale. We can go from zero to 10 and they just can't cope with as many categories as that. And so we're probably better off offering kids in that age group, you know, three or four categories. I don't have any. I've got a little bit I've got some, you know, a bit more, or I've got lots. You know, that's probably all that they can handle rather than the, the full spectrum of, of faces that we <clears throat> tend to offer them. And then, of course, in the less than, you know, three or four um, age group, they're not in a position to be able to articulate and explain their pain in quite the same way. And so self-report really isn't an option. And when you look at that literature, it's a bit of a disaster really in that there are you know there are about 65 pain scales reported in the literature for neonates and infants now obviously some of those are developed for different particular and discrete circumstances you know and um, they're not designed for you know multi-purpose and that increases the number but nonetheless it kind of signals to me we're just not there yet um, people ask me when I start you know started along this path of looking at pain assessment was I going to introduce you know invent the, the Krellen scale for assessing pain and I' like yeah that's just what we need another one number 66 <laughs> yeah, that's right um and I think it really probably um, uh, you know it reflects the the evidence that we have and, and the increasing body of evidence that we have that the pain scales for kids um, you know they're, they're sensitive in that they will detect they'll show you that the child's in pain but they're not specific so they're measuring something else as well as pain which goes back to I think an earlier point I made that you know kids demonstrate pain related behaviors when they're in pain but they're hard to distinguish from other distress related experiences and so what we're measuring is a composite of kind of pain and distress that might be provoked by fear you know anxiety a whole lot of other things Um, and so it makes difficult I think to rely on those scales if what if our if what we're interested in is assessing pain on its own um, separated from some of the other things that often go hand in hand with that <clears throat> and I think in reality clinicians kind of get that um, they know that the scales are actually only measuring what well, sorry I'm measuring a composite experience and if I really want to know about that pain to drive my analgesic decisions it's probably not working for me um, But also more importantly, I think again going back to one of my earlier points that I think we all think we know what pain looks like. I don't need a damn scale to tell me that this kid's in pain or this person, you know, I can see that or they told me that. So why would I go through this rigmarole of asking them to rate the intensity of their pain? Um, I also have a, a personal view rather than there's evidence to support this. I also think that ED clinicians and probably others for that matter too it's just I'm not as familiar with other clinicians as I am ED clinicians I think we tend to work um, from a decision making perspective really dichotomizing pain do you have pain yes or no and if the answer is no great we can move on if the answer is that yes then I need to then my next question is going to be about does it need treatment yes or no and if the answer is yes it needs treatment do I need to go to the the you know the simple analgesics or do i need to get out the big guns so it's really it's a two choice kind of model and i think we work through that decision tree rather than sitting back sort of pen in hand could you give me the number of your pain and then working out what we'll do on the basis of a number because it's a sliding scale and i'll approach your management in a similar fashion on a sliding scale of escalating intervention, I don't think that's how we operate in terms of making the decision. Um, so I think that we're we're kind of a bit handicapped in terms of the tools we've got available to us um, clinically. Um, I also think it's kind of important to remember that pain is more complex than just intensity. So we've we've oversimplified it to just apply a number about intensity, um, but that really. Is probably not um, not comprehensive enough to make for a, a particularly meaningful assessment of pain. So I guess part of your question was what was my key messages. So after all that, <laughs> what do I think the take home messages are? Um, well, I think that that there are limitations to scales. Um, you know, I think that um, they're not they're not going to give us a, a comprehensive assessment of a, of somebody's experience. I think it's important if we're making an assessment of somebody's pain to recognise that that equals action, what I'm going to do with that information. Um, And I think we also need to be careful about our assumptions because I think we are biased because of that socialisation that I talked about. Um, That's probably reflected in the evidence that shows that clinicians make decisions on the basis of the pathology that they can see that explains the pain. you can bet that you're more likely to get analgesics if you've got a visible fracture than if you report your abdominal pain. Um, And that's driven by the assumptions that we make.
2: Great. Thanks, Di. Um, Just moving away a little bit or maybe just taking a slight deviation from pain but still maybe a little bit related to it, can you tell us what's new and what changes we should be aware of in the area of distraction when we're performing procedures with children or on children?
0: Yeah, um, I mean there's pl- certainly plenty of evidence that it's a value, um, that it's a f- an effective tool um, for managing pain and certainly in the context of procedures it's something that we use a lot. Um, I can't help it. It's a bit of an invitation to get onto a hobby horse for me. <laughs> you've, you've opened the door so I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's great evidence that it works and yet repeatedly you hear clinicians say, things like, oh, they can't possibly be in pain. Look at them. They're on their phone. And that drives me demented, absolutely (laughs) demented, because there's good evidence that distraction works. And so what are the chances that we've actually worked out what works for us and that I can be distracted from my pain if I get on my phone, if I talk to a friend, if I read a book, if I eat? That's one of my (laughs) favourites because I love to eat. so I really want to see that out of the out of the language of clinicians and out of their minds that that in fact distraction isn't a useful technique if it's introduced by the patient it has to be introduced by me otherwise it doesn't work. Um, anyway, I'll get down off my soapbox and my hobbler horse now <laughs> and actually answer your question, John. Um, what's new in 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 distraction? Look, I think. Um, Again, you know, distractions—something like assessment, where you have to think about kids in terms of age brackets, because what what works in one age group isn't going to work in another. And I think also then individual interests are going to drive what works in you know for some kids versus another. Um, and I've got a fantastic example, you know, from a couple of weeks ago. In fact, you know, of a of a, a five-year-old who came in with abdominal pain and this and the circumstances of the presentation, you know, her history, meant that it was really crucial that I got to, in the first instance, examine her and then secondly, take bloods. She was super, super anxious about any kind of interaction with health professionals and she would not let me near her. She wouldn't even get on the bed. So the obvious answer was kind of, we're gonna to have to sedate her to do both of those things for me to get a reasonable examination and to take blood. I thought, this is, this is going nowhere. She she won't even get on the trolley. How the hell am I going to get, a, you know, a nitrous mask anywhere near her? So I talked a bit to her about what, what her interests were and she, you know, mad keen Frozen fan and liked to sing. So I left her with the, the tubing, you know, and got her to use the mask and sing down the mask with the other end in her ear so that she could pretend it was a microphone and gave her an opportunity to familiarise herself with it. And the, the, the nurse that I was working with was absolutely superb, took this on but actually took it to a whole new level and ran with it. Um, and she did an awesome job of getting this girl to accept that this was a microphone. And so she inhaled nitrous singing down the mask to a video of Frozen <laughs> And, in fact, we never achieved sedation that was good enough to stop her singing and she sang every word <laughs> of a number of Frozen songs through the whole, through the whole procedure. And I examined her, her tummy. Uh, I took blood without her batting an eyelid and yet, as I said, she never lost kind of the, the ability to sing Frozen songs. <laughs> So I think part of it is about being able to pitch your your efforts, um, where you're going to actually capture the 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 attention and the um the imagination of um of the child. But where are things going, I guess, or what's new in, in that. Um virtual reality's become, you know, a big, I think a, a big one in that wow, we've got technology and we've been using it for years, of course, just on parents handing kids their phones or departments will have, you know um tablets that they can use for that purpose. It replaces the old the olden days where we used to wheel in a trolley with a video recorder on it. You know, all that sort of stuff. You know, we've got computers on wheels so we can run um, you know, YouTube videos of things that they enjoy. But virtual reality is probably one of the things that's being explored, you know, as the cost I think of the units and the capacity to to use um specifically designed um videos and and games and things on them to support kids Um, that's being explored a lot in our department we're just about to start a study um, just to do some evaluation about the magic glove which is a hypnosis technique where you can get kids to disassociate themselves from their arm such that you can perform um, blood taking or insert a cannula without them having any awareness of what's going on so there's some fascinating stuff that's being done um, with of the manipulation of your mind and how you can achieve either a hypnotic sort of state. Um, There's another where they, and I'm not that familiar with it because it's not a technique we use, but um, I think it's extraordinarily fascinating that you can get um, a child to be completely unaware of their arm, or an adult for that matter, just by putting it into a a box um, and then mirroring the arm that you're not working on such that your brain's convinced that what's happening to the non-affected arm is actually the one that's being handled. Amazing stuff. So I think they're some of the places that kind of non-pharmacological and distraction techniques are headed.
1: Uh, you can't just drop that in about hi- hypnotising <laughs> your kids at the at the Royal <laughs> Children's and not explain a bit more. Uh, I just kind of went, hold on, <laughs> hold on a minute, what? <laughs> so I don't
0: want to... Oh, yeah, we've got all these kids... Wandering around in our department <laughs> pretending they're chickens. It's amazing. On any given day, there'll be half a dozen kids going. Wah, 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 wah. No, I'm am kidding.
1: <laughs> so is this something you can talk more about, or is it a bit? Um, is it a bit early? Well,
0: to- I'm. I, I ha- yeah. Look, I'm not actually the uh, an expert in the technique, um, but we certainly have a, a, a consultant. I'm involved in the research, but not an expert in the technique, but a consultant who's. Um, learned hypnosis, and um, it's a technique she uses. She uses with kids to to get them to dissociate from their right. arm using a hypnotic technique, um, and so that you can perform, as I said, blood taking or a painful mm. procedure, needle-related
2: procedure. Mm. But you're not arm. dangling a coin in front of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> getting them to. Count.
0: <laughs> you are getting sleepy. You are getting sleepy. No, that's correct. John. You're not dangling a coin, <laughs> nor do they, um, it, you know, develop a, a trance-like state. And no, you can't get them thrown <laughs> around the department pretending they're a chicken. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: as tempting as that okay, might be. Okay, so
1: I'm sad now that I can't, that We no. can't do that.
0: Yeah, I know. It's not. It's not quite. Um, not quite like a TV show. No, oh,
1: that's 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 amazing. With, who
0: was the famous? Hypnotist? Was it Yuri Geller or somebody like that? Anyway, <laughs> no, he no, bent spoons. Like that. Oh that's right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Slightly away, um, but we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, indicators of, of pain, indicators of distress, fear, all of these sorts of things. Um, and, and again, this is somewhat of a self-serving question because it's something that I'm looking at um, in our departments. Um, how do paediatric triage nurses use parental concern as an indicator of a of the severity of a child's illness or their injuries? Um, and is, is there any way... Um, that you can quantify this? Mm.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's certainly a big part of what um, people whose emphasis is peds are kind of taught, you know, to pay attention um, to the parents and what they're saying and what their concerns are. Um, You know, paediatric clinicians will talk about, you know, listening to parents and they know their child best and things like that. But then I think the flip to that is the you know that we've all had the experience of the super anxious parent who who really probably is overreacting to the physiology if you like or the pathophysiology of the of the events and I how do you distinguish between the two? Oh, how long's a piece of string? I think the important thing for all of us to remember is there's something driving it. There's something driving concern or extreme concern in a parent. Um, And for some parents, that will be that they actually can recognise that there's serious pathology. This child actually has a serious problem um, and it's an urgent problem that needs intervention. And so I guess we've got to take all of them seriously because there will be a subset who belong in that category who actually have identified a big problem. The other group that kind of get labelled the overreactors. I think it's still important that we acknowledge that and that we pay attention to their concerns because something is driving that concern. And if you don't, if we don't, if somebody doesn't, within the team, doesn't um, make any effort to understand that and try and sort that out and address it, um, it's not going to go away and you won't have solved the problem for them. Um, And I think... They're the group of people probably who represent to emergency departments or go back then to another department or represent to their g p about the problem you know to seek the sort of reassurance that they're looking for so i' mean I guess from a triage nurse's perspective, I would suggest that er on the side of they've identified something problematic you know that that there really is a genuinely a serious and urgent concern. But once you're able to identify, you know, once you're able to sort of rule out serious problems, I think somebody then has to visit that space, you know, and, and ask the questions of, you know of of a parent. You know, you seem really worried about this. What's why are you that worried? What's what is your concern? What are you worried about? Um, and you and you often can then tease out what the underlying concern is, which means that you're in a position then to fix it to address it. You know, um, I think most people who've worked with um, enough kids for long enough will have have recognised that, you know, that the parent that just won't let that fever go, you know, it just is on and on. They really need you to raise the issue about febrile convulsions. They need you to talk about that, come out with it, acknowledge the possibility and then explain to them why they're not as dangerous as they think they might be. Or the parent that just can't let go of the rash needs you to to say i've seen meningococcal this rash is not meningococcal um you know and there'll be a range of other issues that that come up when you ask parents the question what what are you most worried about you know it will be the sibling was in hospital and and died years ago in a hospital of something so you know there'll be there'll be something that's driving that that level of anxiety and i think we
1: And it feels like the key is, like, listening to you there is is really ask the question more than anything, more than trying to put a number on it. Just ask the question and and dig down. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. what are you worried about is a great question. What is it that you're most worried about here? Um, You know, I'm getting that you're concerned. I think it's interesting. Um, Watching medical staff and nursing staff over the years, Medical staff can be, are often much more direct with their patients than nurses are. They will ask that question, you know, what are you most worried about? Are you okay about that? Well, certainly that's what I hear medical colleagues at the children's, you know, asking, you know, stepping into territory that perhaps nurses are uh, can be sometimes, I think, a bit reluctant to um, and being respectful and polite but blunt about, you know, putting it out there being up front. <laughs>
2: Thanks, Di. Perhaps we might take a, a slight shift in direction. So, uh, like, as we've just discovered, you, you're, um, you're working pay, about your working pain assessment, but not many people in the emergency world might be familiar or have heard about the work that you've done with OSMAT. So, such as the role as the clinical team leader during the measles outbreak in Samoa last year, or to the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan. If you're comfortable about talking about these experiences, would you be able to tell us about how you got involved and what your experience were during the these deployments?
0: Um, yeah, I, it started with um, I went to Samoa in 2009, so it was 10 years. So in 2029, um, I'm going there on a holiday so that I'm not there for a disaster, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, in 2009, I was part of a Victorian response to Samoa um, after the tsunami that um had a significant impact on 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 Samoa. Um, and so at that stage in Australia, we kind of had a, we did have a disaster response, but it was very state-driven. And so states were asked to field teams in the event that Australia was going to support a neighbouring country in the context of a disaster. And so Victoria had had very little involvement in that really, which is largely because of our geography, you know, that we're, you know, the sort of southern tip barring um Tassie. Um and so we're much, much further away from um from events. But we were asked to field a team and in particular what they were looking for was um was considerable pediatric expertise because they recognized that Samoa has a um a very young population and so um they approached the children's hospital. Um and I think it was just you know it was opportunity that kind of just there was no Um, not necessarily good planning, certainly not on my part (laughs) to be selected. Um, I think partly it related to who can we relieve from the department to send. Um, And so somehow I'm expendable. (laughs) They're very happy to (laughs) farm me off for a week or two. Oh, let's get rid of that old trout. Um, And so um, I was part of a, a group that went in 2009 it wasn't long after that that there was a a really strong push to um nationalize the 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 disaster response um so that was when osmat was set up um and the center in darwin which i'm not even going to attempt to cough up the letters in the right sequence um and the right numbers of them apparently john howard was responsible for the name for the center in darwin National Critical Care and Trauma Response Centre. There you go. Well there done. Tick. <laughs> I got it right. <laughs> um, and um, so they were set up with the, with the, I guess, the brief of pulling together a national response. And the idea was that there would be um, people trained um, within different states and that when we set when Australia sends a response, it's draw, it, it's a team of people drawn from across Australia, um, so that it was truly a national response, but also so that you didn't draw extensively from one state and potentially one organisation, one health service um, to decimate their capacity to provide mm. services at home while you were gone. Um, so that was the beginnings of Osmat. and I guess they looked around at well, who do we train first, and the obvious was or people who have been part of a disaster response prior to that. So that was the kind of the beginnings um, of OSMAT and OSMAT for me. um, I was asked if I would like to do a team member course at that time um, based on having been to Samoa in 2009. So I did that um, and then was asked if I'd go to um, the Philippines after um, their typhoon um, and then again to... um, Samoa in 2019 so last year um in the time period between um the Philippines and Samoa last year um I was then asked if I would tra- do the training as a clinical team leader so there are two of two nurses in Victoria who are trained as clinical team leaders which means that you could potentially go as the nursing team leader um, and so I did that in Samoa last year in the first rotation I actually went back a second time um, and the second time I just went, I went as a, as a, a clinician, which was great, it was a terrific opportunity to, um, you know, to actually spend more time with patients. Um, if I was to talk about my experiences, I guess, you know, it's all going to sound very cliched, I guess, in some ways, um, because it's the sort of stuff that people say all the time, but nonetheless, that doesn't make it any less true. Um, I think the things, my observations really for both were, you know, both about the, the local community and the impact of the disaster and just marvelling at the resilience of, of people, people's capacity just to, in the face of, you know, adversity, just to crack on. Um, and I remember, you know, in the Philippines, you know, it might have been, I don't know, two and a half weeks after the typhoon, that, that you know, there was still just overwhelming volumes of, of destruction around, you know, and their hospital had been trashed and we were working in a tent, um, you know, hospital to provide additional services. And I went into their hospital with a, a few members of the of the team and on the side of the road there were people set up doing haircuts. <laughs> I don't know whether they could perhaps potentially come to Australia or to Melbourne right now and <laughs> help us out with all our COVID hair, but anyway. Um, you know, it was just amazing. And I just looked and thought, wow, you know, they're sitting beside piles of rubbish and refuse through, you know, that's been and buildings that have been destroyed, and here they are cutting hair, and there's another stall over there where people are selling fresh fruit and vegetables. And I just thought people just have this amazing capacity to draw on, you know, on on strength that, you know, at the time I thought, where did I get this from? Um, yeah, it was extraordinary to see that. Um, I think also it it struck me on both occasions or all three occasions, you know, that I'm ex- extraordinarily privileged, um, you know, in terms of my life. I remember um, thinking in the Philippines, you know, we were there just before Christmas and just looking around at what what faced what is a stent, you know essentially a Christian community in the Philippines, and thinking their Christmas has just been absolutely and utterly destroyed. Never mind their Christmas actually, you know their lives have been trashed. And I'm going home in you know in ten days' time or two weeks or you know, whatever time point I had this thought. I'm going home and I'm going home to an intact house, um, you know, cupboard full of food, a family nobody's lost their homes nobody's lost their lives um you know I've them freaking lucky mm. <laughs> um in the face of all this i think the other thing that always strikes me going away is the team that i go with um and you know the samoan experience was pretty harrowing the first rotation, um, which was what made going back the second time lovely because it was all coming to an end. So seeing them all put themselves back together again, really, and see the numbers of cases dropping. But, you know, it was a harrowing experience. You know, we, lots of kids died while we were there. um, And many others you knew were going to have lifelong problems as a result of their illness. You know, and I went with a team of people who were just extraordinary in their commitment um to what they were doing, their compassion and their concern you know um you know they didn't do it without feeling you know there were lots and lots of tears, but equally there was lots and lots of laughter you know again, there was a resilience amongst them that just meant that um they were able to have you know have a laugh with their colleagues um you know to get them through um the other thing that was was lovely to watch was the the support that they provided to each other. So as the team leader but I knew that there were lots and lots of other people functioning in not a dissimilar way for each other, you know, that they were leading each other um, and offering support and that was lovely to see that kind of, um, you know, warmth Mm -hmm. amongst team members and, and thought. So, yeah, as I said, it kind of, it's the sort of thing I'm sure that lots of people say about those kinds of um, experiences, but that doesn't
2: make it any less true. Yeah, it's. I think teamwork is really important and having a good team by your side. So you can have that even informal debrief just mm. to rely on when you're seeing so much, I guess, devastation, like you said. So it'll be good to see how you feel about Samoa when you go and visit it in 2029 when there's no disaster <laughs> yeah. going on there and you've actually come full circle essentially or not yeah. completely full circle. I'm
0: not sure what I'll yeah, I'm not sure what I'll do there because it's a very um, beach-orientated uh, environment and before we started, Cliff and I were talking about the beach and that I'm not really a beach person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sure there'll be other I activities for you to do. I'm sure. Speaking yeah. of teams, I guess, um, this is probably a self-serving question for me. Like your nurse practitioner okay. team at, at the in the ED at the Royal Children's has grown from one where you were the first nurse practitioner. to now, mm. I think, is it 15 or 16 or 14 around that?
0: Yeah, we have um, – we've got 15 people in the team now um, and 14 of whom are endorsed as nurse practitioners. And
2: you've gone from – so you've got this like uh, – a critical mass essentially of emergency nurse practice in your Mm. department Mm -hmm. and you've gone from working in the minor injury, minor illness sort of ambulatory care slash fast track area to now working in every area in your department um, except from recess is my understanding but that that could be changing um, or could have changed. I guess – you know, my mm. understanding from sort of a lot of the people that I've spoken to in Victoria, a lot of the emergency nurse practice, we're kind of just geographically isolated in fast-track area or that ambulatory care. You've managed to kind of break through that and not only do that but expand your numbers. Like what sort like how, mm. how did you do it? <laughs> have you got a <laughs> – so, so some of us could – Is yes, there a recipe and can I share it? What advice have you got? <laughs> take, yeah. a,
0: take a pinch of this and a pinch of that. Um, I think it's been lots of factors that have um, secured the success of our service. Um, you know, I think like, like most EDs, um, ours started at a time when ED presentations were, you know, escalating exponentially, waiting times were increasing. And so like other departments, we certainly recognise that we've got a service gap here. We are not providing, um, well, certainly not timely care to numbers of people and possibly there were cohorts of of kids and their families who weren't getting the best quality of care and through nobody's fault i'm not suggesting that anybody wasn't doing their job properly but just you know if you're not experienced in a particular area it's difficult to offer you know the best possible care i mean it's a training environment so there'll be people who are still learning as they go Um, and so we recognized i think Mostly that you know it was about the efficiency of service and the and access to service that was our was our problem, but to some extent quality as well, so having a very very clear goal um for our service i think um on a a gap in service that we felt that n p s could could address um set us up well um but that's not been the the whole answer because that's you know, I think lots of departments have have made that observation. They've got a gap in service, and perhaps an NP could serve it. I think there are a couple of other factors that have probably um, been to our great advantage. One was that we've embedded or integrated our NPs into clinical teams within the department, rather than setting us us up as a separate service to provide. One stream of care. So what I mean by that is that the fast track model is not an NP model. It's a fast track model. And the NP is a member of that team. And there are, you know, there are doctors in that team and a nurse in that team. And similarly, our rapid or front of house team is not the NP team. It's comprised of, you know, a number of clinicians, one of which is an NP. Um, And so I think what that means is that those teams, you know, don't function as effectively when there isn't an NP in it because they've been designed around the clinicians that, that should comprise this team to make an efficient service. So when the NP's not there, it's obvious. Um, you can recognise that there's a deficit in the way that you provide the, that particular stream rather than us being, well there's an NP stream and you can stream patients to that particular stream and they work in relative isolation within, mm. you know, a larger department, which means I think it's a bit easier to kind of forget them in a way. And so when they're not there, you don't notice. And so if you don't expand that service, it doesn't matter. Um, whereas I think that notion of kind of embedding them has made a difference for us. It makes us as a, as a role rather than individuals as indispensable. Um, I think that's the other thing is making it about the role, Um, I was really keen um, early on to try and quickly um, get enough NPs into the system that we would be able to cover, you know, a a reasonable span of the roster and that we would lose this being about individuals, that this isn't the Dichrelin service and she's an NP, that it's the NP service and Dichrelin happens to be one of them. But if she leaves tomorrow, the NP service doesn't fall down because it's not contingent on her um, or anyone for that, you know, anyone else for that matter, um, that it is about the role rather than individuals. Um, and I think we managed to do that, which was good. Um, sort of er- relatively early on we managed to get enough to be able to span a roster and move away from a very individualised um, service and I think that probably um relates to the kind of the third factor that I think is crucial to our success and that is that we had really supportive management from both medicine and nursing really early on, which meant that um, people were prepared to be a little bit creative about um, funding and find ways to you know shuffle money across from <laughs> one <laughs> from one uh, <laughs> One account to another, to um, in order to expand the numbers of NPs that we had. It also meant that they um, worked as hard as we, the NPs, did to advocate for NPs and their value to the service, so that we could, um, so that we were able to get additional funding from the executive for NP positions again to expand the service, which only then, you know, you success begets success in a way, that that just meant that we were able to span more of the roster to integrate ourselves into more of the teams within the department because we had more hours to play with, if you like, more more shifts worth of NPs that we could put in places. Um, and so that meant that we had a more demonstrable impact on the service that was being provided. So then that allowed us to advocate and argue for more resource to m- make further expansion possible. um yeah so I think, as I said, success begets success really um, yeah, I think they're probably the main factors that have resulted in us um, being so well integrated and well established where it's not a service that's going to disappear you know next week um, if somebody leaves, we just replace that person um, I think in terms of how we've managed to get into other areas um, of the department um that's been, um, we've tackled that in a number of ways. Um, our NP team, we all still do an NP shift, no, sorry, an RN shift as part of our NP clinical roster. So we work at triage or in resus, et cetera. Um, and we do that for quite a few reasons. Um, it allows us to retain some of our registered nurse skills because they, of course, disappear. Certainly the psych- psychomotor skills of of, of managing things you know, in Risa certainly do, they deteriorate over time. And I think it was important to us to recognise that we're actually emergency nurses first and foremost and so we all wanted to retain our capacity to function as emergency nurses um, before we became MPs. So it was to achieve that. It also anchors us much more, I think, clearly within the nursing team that we're a nursing resource. We're a nursing colleague um, we're not doctors and we're not, as a consultant said to me very early on, oh, Daisy, you won't really be a nurse anymore. You won't be a doctor. You're sort of going to belong to this third group. Yeah, no, actually I'm still a nurse, mate. <laughs> I'm an ED nurse huh? and I can promise you um, that's, that's, you know, that's what I'll stay no matter what. Um, um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's why we've introduced that. But I think the, the final point about allocating RN shifts that I'd point out is it's been a creative way of tackling additional funding because our NP budget is supplemented with, by the RN budget so that we can have more people in our team and therefore that builds in, if you like, redundancy as in if someone leaves We've got more people in our team to make up for that and, and to cover the deficit until you employ somebody to replace because um, you just pull back on those RN shifts because we cover RN positions by working those shifts. You can employ fewer RNs and more NPs. So it's a, it's been a creative way of shifting money across from one, one stream to another. Um, we did have a period where we um, advocated for us to be in resus. We thought we could there would be some patients that we could see, and there's no question we could. Um, some of the straightforward, the croup, asthma, some of our you know significant um, fractures and other injuries might wind up in recess to start with. Um, and we could see those patients in recess. We also thought that there was a potential for us to function, I guess not dissimilar to the idea of a physician's assistant where the consultant could be relieved of doing some of the, the, the workup, if you like, of a patient but the decision-making rested kind of with both the consultant and the NP, but we did a lot of the, the procedural work of working up a patient. And then thirdly, we could act as, a, as, a, as nursing leadership to some extent, supporting the, the experienced resus nurse, but the one who needed, say, some support to step up as a clinical leader, that we could be behind them, promoting them in that way. And so for a period of time, we allocated ourselves to resus and the department was supportive of that. Um, But we self-declared, nah, we're out. Um, And we did that because there were occasions where, and there are always occasions, where there just isn't the work in resus for any of the treating clinicians in resus. So we certainly would move away and start seeing other patients. And the dash back to get to that one (laughs) patient that's come in, (laughs) meant you'd be hipping, shouldering each other out of the way. And we actually just thought in the end, you know what, this is not an efficient use of us as a resource um, to be here. Um, so we've redeployed ourselves now to the cubicle area where we see more complex patients than in, um, we do in Fast Track, um, you know, but we're not in recess.
2: Great. Food for thought if, uh, for those wanting to move mm. forward. Um, this is my last question for me, not from Cliff though. So setting COVID aside, um, it'd be good to hear yeah. about what you and your department are challenged by at the moment.
0: So, setting COVID aside, <laughs>
2: can you remember what it was possible. like?
0: <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> setting setting COVID aside, yeah. Um, wow, it's just become such kind of an uh, such an overwhelming event that it's taken over. I think everything in it yeah it's hard to remember what, what what were we doing before this all happened and what were our challenges um you know what did we face because now i can tell you that it's a mix of you know managing the the ppe and the streaming etc with for, at, time, at times boredom because you know communicable disease is a big part of pediatric emergency practice and lockdown doesn't just protect you from COVID, it protects you from everything, RSV, <laughs> influenza, parainfluenza, rhinovirus, the whole nine yards. So I can't remember the last kid I saw with, you know, baby I saw with bronchiolitis. No, all jokes aside, um, what were our challenges? Um, I shouldn't say this because we're blessed with a, you know, a brand-new hospital that I should be extolling, you know, the 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 beauty and and resources of that etc but space (laughs) space was remains a big challenge for us um you know how do we push through the numbers that we see in our department because our numbers continue just to escalate and so in the middle of winter 350 um, on a winter's day is not that abnormal now that's sort of that's most Sundays and Mondays unfortunately and it's pretty hard to squeeze that through a department that probably wasn't designed for that number of, of, um, of presentations. So that causes us considerable challenge. Um, I think the efficiency, and I know that's not unique to us, and none of probably that our challenges are going to actually sound particularly unique to us. <laughs> People will be able to um, see their own challenges, I think in ours as well. Um, education is the other and by that I mean you know we're really fortunate that we've got numbers of people um, employed in education roles in the department so I'm not suggesting it's that we don't have resource but it's a big challenge for three or four people to provide education across you know a staff of sort of I don't know how many nurses we are 140 I've got no idea I'd be making that number up it could be could be, you know, could be five hundred <laughs> for all I know. Um, it's not five hundred, of course, it's not. But you know what? You get my point. How do you get education across that span of staff efficiently and effectively? And then how do you do that? Similarly, do that for medical staff? And then how do you construct a, a program of education that integrates those teams so they get to train together? Um, and simulation, of course, is where we've all headed, you know. But simulation. Is resource intensive, and it only involves you know the handful of people who are here and able to participate in simulation now, um, because you just can't. Well, they're not available, but also it's not doesn't make sense to try and squeeze thirty people through simulation all in one go, you know, because that's not realistic. So, how do you use education effectively, efficiently to achieve you know your end goal? I think is um, is one of our challenges. And then quality improvement I think is is the other area that I think um, is is the challenge, and it's kind of the icing on the cake you know it's like most things that you know the the big huge problems it's easy to make lots of lots of change because. Lots of changes needed, um, you know, and lots of improvements needed. And so you just change one thing and you get this massive improvement in things and we all cheer and go, yay, look what we've done. But it's the icing on the cake and the sprinkles on the icing that's really hard. I think it's when you identify the small issues and, you know, and you need, you know, cultural change, system change to get those the small wins. I think that's hard um, and I think that's something we kind of struggle with a little bit about how do you shift you know to make those last little little things um better so that you can gain improvements i made that sound as though we're so close to perfect that it's just the little things that we need to fix and that's actually not true at all
1: <laughs> no, no, no
0: <laughs> that would be
1: not at all i i don't think you you it did make it sound uh, like you're perfect because, you know, it's like when you go to a conference or whatever and you meet other ED nurses from all around Australia or around the world and everybody is struggling with the same types of challenges, space, mm. education, mm. how do you deliver it? Um, and it, uh, interesting to hear you really highlight there around quality improvement because there's so many people and so many issues screaming for attention. Mm. It's these small Uh, incremental little improvements that are so important
0: and how do you prioritize Mm -hmm. them
1: exactly exactly and
0: you know how do you decide that 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 piece of work needs to be given priority we all need to make effort there and particularly when i think so much of what needs to be done in eds you know the clinical stuff as in um, finding the evidence to support will we use this medication versus that one right that's you know we're working on that and there's but a lot of the improvements need to be driven by um behavior changes and system changes and they're so much harder to achieve um then right we're going to shift from using prednisolone in croup to dexamethasone the evidence is stronger and you only need one dose mm. right and you just you know, done yep. also guideline change done but when it's kind of That we need people to approach things differently that's so much harder so i guess yes behavioral change is probably one of our biggest challenges Mm.
1: really interesting we've covered a lot of ground but it might be nice to finish off hopefully with something um positive and i think actually there were some really positive messages in there throughout uh, uh, what we've talked about is there anything in your emergency world recently that's made you really happy or you see as an achievement or that you're proud of for your colleagues or even from by for for yourself
0: that's so hard to answer (laughs) (laughs) and the reason it's really hard to answer and i'm probably not allowed to say this but i'm going to sound like a banker <laughs> if I say, oh, it all makes me happy. I love it all. <laughs> but actually that's just it. Um, I should really, really enjoy emergency um, and as a result, despite the fact that, you know, if I was interested, I could take a full-time position Um Within a, an academic world and just work within a university, um, and have nice nail polish and wear nice clothes, mm. although not at the moment. We're all in our tracky jacks and active wear um, in, in the COVID era. But I would miss the ED, and I would I would miss I think I would miss the humour. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would miss the irreverence and the and the naughtiness. You know, really. Um. You know, I often think in our in our tea room. If HR sat in our tea room by <laughs> eight o'clock <at laughs> this morning, half the department would be out. You, know? <laughs> you, you, and you on your bike, sling your hook. <laughs> um. So huge numbers of things make certainly make me happy and make me. Um, really motivated to work in an emergency department and Hume is one of them. But I guess one of the observations I've made, um, and it is harking back to (gasps) that (laughs) word COVID, um, what's really obvious to me is, um, how team orientated, um, EDs are. Um, but actually some people were missing from the team. And COVID's drawn them in and I've loved seeing that. So our support staff were there and worked with us but weren't quite as clearly part of the team. And I've actually seen a real shift in that um, in the last few months, you know, since all this kicked off, that I now see people standing around talking, you know, where it's actually a support staff member and a clinician chatting, not Oh, hi, can I get you to get me a trolley or can, would you mind cleaning it? But they're actually, yeah, how are you going? What's happening? And there's a bit of banter going on between them. And I really like seeing that. Um, it surprises me in some ways that that hasn't been the case all along um, because one of the observations I've made, you know, now, but I've made previously about our department is that they are kind of a generous spirited team. Um, you know, and in this, one of our staff members made, I've forgotten how many, but it was in excess of 200 um, scrub hats that he just dumped in the tea room for people to take and wear at work. Um, pretty significant <laughs> undertaking. And there are others who've done similar things. One of the NP team runs a, a mindfulness session once a week for staff just to check in and just um, because he's aware that people are finding it tough. Um, and it's making it harder to come to work at times, so he offers that. But I've seen that kind of stuff before in our department. As Soon as there's a cause, people get on board with it. We've had that many fundraising exercises, you know, where there's bake sales and people raffling this, et cetera, for various causes. It surprises me that we haven't included our support staff before, but I've seen it now, um, and it, that makes me happy and makes me proud of the team.
1: Excellent. Yeah, look, I don't think you're going to get any argument across all of our listeners and from John or I. Mm-hmm. Um, every time someone says, oh, why did you become an emergency nurse? It, it, they always expect, especially if they're not from healthcare, they always expect, oh, is it the adrenaline? You go, no. Well, it hasn't been for me. It's It was always about the no. teamwork. It was always about the um, level playing field across, you know, whether yeah. you're a security guard, a domestic staff cleaning the room mm. or a nurse or a consultant whoever it was there was always a very level playing field there in my mind and that's yeah. that's the huge part of of emergency care
0: yeah yeah i think humor and the um enjoyment of a good chat are the things that um i love about ed <laughs> because uh, anyone who knows me knows that i don't
1: mind a good chat well <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we've actually Stop laughing, I think John. We've actually discovered it here, Di that y- you do love a good chat. This is probably one of the longest longest versions of this emergency. Probably life. sorry. It's not at all, it has been delightful speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I think Oh, it's my pleasure. I think when we're all out of the other end of this COVID nonsense, um, it would be lovely to catch up again. Indeed.
2: Thanks, Di. Thank
0: you.
1: Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.